Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Just caught him <laughs> wiping his mouth with the Kleenex. And you are listening to the second episode of... <laughs> now I'm in trouble. And very possibly the last. <laughs> I'm already in trouble. We haven't even said the name of the show yet. TDPS presents Christopher. And Eric. And Christopher is in trouble with Eric. Which and is maybe how it usually soon it'll just be Eric. <laughs> or Christopher. Very depends possibly. On, depends on which one of us walks out of the studio first. Yes. Right? Who's dead? <laughs> Who's dead? You'll have to guess. Well, the one who is talking will not the, be the dead. The joy of being on, of doing a podcast is that people can't see us, so there's no need for me to describe <laughs> that giant zit in the middle of your forehead. You liar! I don't have a zit. <laughs> I don't have a zit. I just have a lot of nervous tics. Right? And you don't have to worry about it so much because we have, you know, a voice, a face for radio. I was thinking about this the other day. If you are if you are new to us, if you are discovering us through this podcast, we uh, we have another show called The Dinner Party Show, which we did for many years and may well do again. But there was the time when we did the show as a live broadcast and then we would post a podcast version, but we really wanted it to be like a live internet radio thing. And then we brought cameras in. And you are all about the cameras. You are you are just utterly self possessed. The minute the cameras came in, I got I started to get this tension on like the sides of my jaw because I was grimacing started. the whole time. <laughs> started shut up. I was grimacing the whole time and I was uncomfortable because sort of like I was a young child in a school play. The, the thing, one of the things that we talked about when we were originally pitching the dinner party show and uh, what the unique aspect of the show would be was that there was this sort of wild and crazy old guy and this tight ass 20 year old like I was <laughs> who is now 41 by yeah, the way who, is, yeah. who wasn't a 20 year old even at the time but you know the younger guy was the one who acted like the older guy it was yeah. it's kind of the one of the odd aspects of our friendship is that is that we're friends. <laughs> That's and, the odd aspect. And if of he our makes friendship. another crack like that about me, well, I'm, <laughs> it could be over. No, I think if that was going to do it, it would be long over. We're yeah, I, I really yeah, we're like a what is it? Our friend Michael Rowe, who was a guest on the Dinner Party Show. We will not just keep plugging the Dinner Party Show. We'll we'll talk about other. I things. love the Dinner Party Show. It's I'm, great. No promises. It's all available for to download and stream at thedinnerpartyshow.com, which is where this podcast. Podcast is available as well. But our friend Michael Rowe said the great thing about us, the two of us, Christopher and Eric being best friends, is that unlike in a relationship, we will never break up. Right. Because yeah. you never fall out with your friends. No. I mean, like, you, yeah, I know. It's it's a sort of, it's a thing. No, but I thought that was really a very sweet thing for him to say. It was he a very that There was sweet no thing. sense that we would ever stop being, although he's been married for 500 years, so I think he's living proof that the there, relationship thing isn't necessarily true. I we get I feel like we get interesting responses to our friendship specifically from married people because married people act like it's an either or proposition. Like a lot of married people react to us as if they could not have a friendship with someone that's as close as ours because their spouse would either get jealous or they literally wouldn't have the time for it. It's a very interesting thing. Like I've had friends of mine say, do you think you are single because you are such close friends with Eric? And it's like, I don't, you know, I'm saying they're acting like this is the truth. Not that it is the truth. Like it's more of a statement, I think, about them and their views on friendship. I think that the place that it always brings me, and we talk about this some, is, is like 
friendships don't have to be inferior to romantic relationships just because they don't involve having sex with somebody. You, and you know what I mean? And they also don't rule out the possibility of, like, because you're in a relationship, you can't have friendships. That seems really odd to me. And borderline that abusive. Can't like a, Like a boyfriend or if, you're, if your partner or your spouse is saying you cannot have deep friendships with other people... Right. I don't know. Unless you like that, in which case, enjoy it. But yeah, I think that's really. That seems odd to me. What a strange thing for people to say. It is a say. strange thing. Like, and there's because you've had all kinds of boyfriends in the time that all we've been. kinds: short boyfriends, little boyfriends, <laughs> winged boyfriends, variety pack, horned boyfriends, boyfriend variety, pothead boyfriends. You've had a lot. I've had of a lot of different boyfriends in the time that we've been friends. So yeah, I don't think it stopped you. No, I don't think it does either. And it's it's very strange though. But it is. I think people who were on a track in life of. I have to find someone and get married as soon as possible, particularly if they're a heterosexual couple or they're gay people who want to conceive children biologically. The clock is ticking, and this is the schedule, and it's like, yeah, I'm not down with all that. I don't subscribe to all that. But this is just a long way of saying that if you are a tall British crime solver with a bony featured face, you should give <laughs> Eric Shaw Quinn your phone number because he and I are not married, even though we do practically everything together and um, tell each other everything. So whoever it is is going to have to like you, too. Yeah, I think absolutely. that would probably be, yeah. Yeah, I do like British men. My God. Tall, bony, bright-eyed. Christopher pointed that out. I didn't really necessarily know oh, that about myself. Oh, my God, yeah. It's really true. And uh, yeah. because I And I was able to see it because I like the opposite. But the like, crime solver thing has to do with the people on the movies that I like. Like, I yes. think probably it would be successful businessman would be my... Sort of, I, I think success is really appealing. Yes, competence. You have a competent oh, kink. I am. That's what so I call it. That smart yes. and competent really goes a long way. I sometimes get um, blown away by like the commentators on Rachel Maddow, who you wouldn't mm, think would be you know sexy. Yeah, but like, come on and be talking about how you're going to change the law. Absolutely. Like, oh yes. Oh, Playing yeah. with your nipples while you hear about the Whatever. Justice Department, What's like this? most okay. of Rachel Maddow's wow. viewers. <laughs> Did not say that. Not, All right, get a machine I'm not to do it for you. Jerking off to Rachel Maddow, but th- there is something really appealing to me about that. Mm-hmm. I think that. People who are really talented or really smart or really good at what they do, that really gets my motor running. Well, and I think that's part of your blazing and wonderful individuality because most of what people find sexy are people who are younger and dumber than them. Or, like, not necessarily that exactly, but, like... Yeah, it wouldn't break my heart if he looked like Henry Cavill while he was doing it. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. But, you know, I have a... I I don't need that. I would be perfectly happy to be, you know, daddy to some, you know, little little homemaker who, you know, is, speaks in a high squeaky voice because <laughs> I don't know what that is. We were at a table with some friends of ours. We were celebrating your it's birthday. really true. And the waiter had this voice and it's sort of like, sort of like a character named Jordan Ampersand. A little bit who is based who, on almost everyone Christopher yeah, ever dated. I hear that voice and I'm like, come to daddy. I'm like, dad, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting the things that get built in. I, I wonder what from your childhood was the thing that gave you that sense of being like, you know, where did that come from in your life? Is that on board? Was that part of your genetic makeup? Or I know. Is there some aspect of your own life 
Maybe it was an appreciation of just people who are really, really out. Yes, I think so. But I'll, I will say this. It's a, and I'm fascinated by that question. Like, it's not quite – it, I guess it is nature or nurture, right? Is it is something in your DNA or is it taught to you? Or are you socialized to be a certain way? All that sort of stuff fascinates right. me in other areas. But in this area, like, I know that as a young child, not a baby, but let's say four, five, and six, I loved to use baby talk. And it was actually a problem. It was it was getting to the point where I wouldn't I needed to begin to communicate as an older child and I would sit there at four like and every medical health professional, let's just say the time that I was in couples therapy, this came up some because I'll still do it. You know, like I'll 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 drop my voice and start to talk like that, thinking I'm being cute. And it's now that I'm forty one, it's really not cute. Well, it's just a little disturbing. But my couples therapist at the time said, It's fear. And she did the voice as she was explaining it to me, which was sort of like, it was a little condescending. But she said it is a device to disguise fear, right? Like, I'm, cool. I'm going to say something that I'm afraid is going to start a conflict or get a reaction. So I use this little baby voice, you know. And anyway, I don't know if that answers your question of why I find it attractive in other people. Because that voice to me in a potential sex partner is about confidence, you know, and particularly in a gay man, a gay man who's not afraid to just show, be a just be queen. a screaming queen. You know, like it's just not. There is something sexy about it, and I am apparently in the minority. If you talk to a lot of screaming queens, there's a lot of really sort of ugly language on dating apps about no fats, <laughs> no femmes. You know, well, I just think that is really the most ridiculous. The straight actor, right? Like what? It, that is the dumbest concept I have ever heard of in my entire life. Like, it's the cock-sucking guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not the figure skating. <laughs> but also, as you often point out, that, like, yeah, it, like, so women do all the things that straight gay men are people, willing to do. women do those things, so does that make it straight acting? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Why on earth would you go to all this trouble to be with somebody who's acting like a straight person? Like, don't the, find it the sexy. actual stuff that is really gay has nothing to do with how limp your wrist is or how blonde your hair is or how flamboyant your outfit right. is or whether or not you work as a hairdresser or an interior decorator or some, I don't know, stereotypical thing or a member of the Fab Five. That's not what makes you gay. No, it's not. And I mean, I, this is my... <sighs> I'm not I'm not going to say I researched this theory with a lot of hard sociological data, but this is my belief, okay? That there was a period in history where many of the people who came out of the closet, there was never any staying in the closet. You know, they were the ones who got identified pretty early on as being yeah, the gay. Yeah, I've always I, – men who dress in, you know, drag queens or whatever, mm -hmm. trans or whatever, people – men who are willing to go out on the street dressed as a woman, mm -hmm. those are the bravest people I ever met. Absolutely. And not to undercut their bravery, but a lot of the people who were more inclined to come out of the closet – when before being gay was as accepted as it is now, they were pushed right in the beginning, and they made they put their chin up and they made absolutely the best of it. And, and I, I'm more power to them, and they are trailblazers. And absolutely. I love them. <laughs> Now that we are in a place where being gay is more accepted, I, more people have come out of the closet who were not necessarily break, break, breaking the doors down with their gay flames, if you will. So 
the the type that gay became in the early days when a certain type of gay person was coming out with greater frequency and greater rapidity uh, no longer necessarily applies to all gay people. There's a greater cross-section of gays that are visible and out now. And so having those sort of restrictive labels or that, that shorthand, aside from being offensive on a variety of levels, it's just no longer even applicable. Well, I hope not. I mean, I hope that we're moving away from that sort of nonsense as we as 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 it is becoming a more sort of mainstream kind of label. I've spent my life being annoyed more by gay people telling me how I ought to be gay. Right. How so? Than I ever have been by straight be- I mean, you know, certainly I the homophobia has been offensive and off-putting, but honestly, the discrimination... Well, it's about conformity. Mm -hmm. I'm not a person who is about conformity. I don't think I have to look like, sound like, act like, or be like anybody else to be who I am. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I think because there was so much fear in the community, I, I guess the fear is the is the the case maybe it was because we we had to live in this sort of ghettoized yes. second class kind of environment but conformity was huge 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 absolutely the same outfit the same haircut like there was a point when i first moved to west hollywood Every gay man here had the same haircut. Which one was it? I called it the Howdy Doody the haircut. The Howdy Doody haircut, yeah, I remember that It just that was one. like, oh my God, mm-hmm. why do you always have, why does everyone have to have the same haircut? Mm-hmm. I just, I, I found that it, it just didn't work for me. And then there was, you know, embracing the second, we're having fights now in the community of older gay people are so entrenched in what was the outcome, you know, what was ultimately sexual liberation became and being a sexual outlaw became the way in which people expressed their freedom, mm, mm-hmm. I think. Right. And I think there are gay men of a certain generation who have conflated that with being gay. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, personal sexual proclivities are everybody's personal choice. But it isn't being gay. It's your personal sexual proclivities. You told me recently about an article. I think it might have been in Harper's or The Atlantic. I can't remember which. And it was by a gay uh, political thinker, columnist. His name is escaping me. Uh, was writing about the quote-unquote decline of what he saw as interesting gay culture, which has been a topic now that a lot of writers have tackled for, I'm going to say, about 15 years. And every time they do it, it's clear they're defending their own specific view of what gay culture is and, and, and not mine, or rarely anything close to mine. But this article began with the article, the artist or writer complaining that at a recent symposium of, of some sort or a conference – a group of radical fairies, that's actually their their name, suggested that they open the conference by all masturbating together. And they were offended when this idea was <laughs> not did not catch on with the entire group. Roundly dismissed and your, by other your people. And your reaction was, I kind of understand that. You know, if you're in a mixed setting, that I just, you know, there are some conferences. I've been to a lot of conferences and we have not masturbated in front of each other. Yeah, it's not I, been a part of I, it. The whole... the. The, the overwhelming information that that's apparently a real struggle for people <laughs> in the Me Too generation that, that not masturbating around other people is actually something you'd have to think about yes, is kind of a startling. Uh, but yeah, anyway. I, it, is that, it is that sense that 
being being sexually liberated by that being exhibitionism or non-traditional sexual behavior um, is uh, is somehow the same thing as freedom. And it's like, no, that's just your personal kink and you're welcome to it. Knock yourself out. I don't have any judgment about that. But don't tell me that that's what being gay means. Yeah. I mean, and there's also an interesting thing happening right now where – you know, the I'm not going to call it the emergence of political gay political conservatives because they've always been around and there's always been the log cabin Republicans. But it is people having to realize that just because you're gay does not mean you hold a very specific set of political beliefs. No, you know, specifically now that gay marriage is legal in all all of the land and hopefully will stay that way. I think I think it will. Um uh, when a lot of segments of the community got that right, they weren't going to hang around for the other stuff. It turned out, oh, surprise, they're actually registered Republicans and believe in limited government and low taxes. And they're not going to be about socialized this and that. And, One you know, of so. the things that I've always said that was so difficult about coming together for uh, gay rights or gay causes was that we're 10 percent of Everyone. Mm -hmm. We're not just 10% of one homogeneous group. We're 10% of all groups. So 10% of, I don't know, radical left wing, uh, I don't know, Muslims are gay. Right. Like it's everybody, everybody is, you know, it's 10% of everybody. But the, and you also say this, and I think it's important to note the one thing we do all have in common is sex. Right. That's the that is the that's the marker. So gay magazines are going to have sex on the cover. They're going to have sex on the first page. They're going to have sex because it, from a marketing perspective, that's the only way to sort of appeal to everybody or try because to appeal to everybody. Otherwise, you're not appealing to a homogeneous yeah. group. You're just this is the only area of it's like Boolean notation. This is where all the circles cross. Right. Yeah. Is on the one area, but I think it also presents itself with a great diversity. Mm-hmm. And I I hope that that's what's ha- that I hope that what's happening mm-hmm. is that as that happens that other groups are feeling freed from their own um, stereotypes their right. own sense of I must be this way I remember I interviewed Eric McCormick back in the day um, when Will and Grace was cutting edge um, in the world and one of the things that he said was that. As a straight man playing the gay character, he really enjoyed the freedom of it because when he had to play cowboys or whatever, even as a straight man, he was trying to act a certain way, Mm -hmm. straight acting. He was a straight guy trying to be straight acting because that was somehow a thing that even he wasn't aware of what that was because that's not a real thing. It It is us modeling behavior for other people that's based on what we want them to think of us and not necessarily who we are. And I hope everybody is finding the kind of freedom that, frankly, I've experienced my whole life. I, I fortunately have never given a shit what anybody ever thought of me. Which is part of why we are friends, because I give way too much of a shit. <laughs> I really do, and I always have. And I don't know if it's because growing up with a celebrity parent or, or, or I, I don't know if that's – that could be a convenient excuse. I don't know if that's the truth. <clears throat> but you really the one of the first things I think I ever said about you was you were comfortable walking into any room that you had to go into. You were always the one Eric, as we say. You know, you were there was not a version of Eric 
for the grocery store and a version of Eric for work and a version of Eric. You were always at, you were not inappropriate at any of those places. You were not, let's say, masturbating without warning in front yes, of people. That, I try not to do that. But your your passions and your convictions and your uh, personality were consistent across everywhere you went. And when I first met you, I was a lot younger. We're both older now. Um, I had versions. I had compartmentalized. There was a version of myself that would go to the gay bar, and then there was a version of myself that would hang out with the uh, straight relatives of the person who was my best friend in those times. And they were very different. And they didn't, you know, one didn't. And I, I, I don't mean you have to go through life arguing with everyone to the death who expresses a different political viewpoint. But but you can feel it, I think, on the inside when you are not being true to who you are. And I don't think you have ever felt that because you have never not been true to who you well, are. I've had, I guess there have been degrees. I mean, I grew up and there's mm-hmm. certainly been a transition over time that has happened over time. Like growing up a gay man in the South in the time period that I did, keeping my mouth shut about it was I was never like I never tried to date girls and I never put on a big show of being somebody that I wasn't. But I also, you know, didn't rave a rainbow flag at the pep rally. Yeah. You know, I wasn't. But that's a matter of survival. That would have gotten me killed or beaten up or whatever. I got beat up plenty as it was because it was, you know, there was a lot of glass panes in that closet door too. And it wasn't really a closet door with me. So there was less, less about that. Over time though, it evolved. Mm -hmm. I, I think the biggest change happened around the publication of Say Uncle. Mm Mm-hmm. There was I did I actually did the first signing of Say Uncle in Columbia, South Carolina, where it is set and where my parents still live. And I said to my family when the book was coming out, I said, I don't know what the reaction to this book will be. Right. So I apologize in advance. Mm-hmm. But I you know, it was a time when people. Gay people were actually having their own children taken away from them in court. So a right. book about a gay man raising a child, I didn't know how that was going to play, even though it was not a very serious book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about a topic that was, you know, that had kept me agentless and unpublished for a really long time. What was the line? Oh, my God. There, we always talk about it. The line from that rejection letter that that editor wrote to you about the book, you just... About hearing a different drummer. You hear a different drummer. And he was basically saying, I don't believe gay people should have kids. I mean, the story is about a gay man who basically receives custody of his sister's child because she dies in a car accident and she has willed, that's not the right phrase, willed the child, it's not a possession, but she has appointed him the guardian right. and the and the uh, the bigoted in-laws try to take the child away. That's just the first part of right. the Right, it, it is the conflict that sets up the story and right. then it goes from there. But um, when that came out, it was okay. That mm-hmm. was kind of out there. And then they, I did an interview with an old friend God, I can't remember his name off the top of my head now, but somebody who I had known who wrote uh, theater criticism at the the, the local paper there now. Um, and uh, there was a, basically like a Sunday supplement, gay author returns to Columbia. And I was like, <laughs> well, I guess that ship has sailed, right. right? I didn't make a big statement about it. I didn't deny it, but it had never been like the lead in a headline in the newspaper with a color photograph of but, me. And it was... Very freeing because right. after that it was like, like I might moderate a conversation because there was a table of old ladies next to mine at a restaurant, or I mm-hmm. might. There was editorial 
There were yeah. editorial choices that I made about managing other people's comfort. And I think that was the last to go with me. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, every, this is who I am. And it's apparently completely out there now. So there you go. It had never been very well hidden anyway. Did you find really Did you find that some people showed up to the book signing in the wake of that being in the local paper who you might not thought it would have before because it was presented in such a way that it was also a success. You see what I'm saying? It was not just, he's a local gay, he's a local gay who published a book. I will tell you, I did not know how that was going to go, and it was a rainy day. Mm -hmm. It was quite rainy. It was like southern thunderstorms, and people stood for up to an hour in the rain. Mm. For me, you know, to sign their book, I was really surprised. And the thing that I got from it was that I gave people an opportunity to support me and they did. Right. I think that there is a there is something to be said for that. Mm -hmm. If you go in with your shit stolen and you want to have a fight, well, that's probably what you're going to find there. But if you open yourself up and say, this is your chance to support me. Right. My experience is people... Not everybody, but a lot of people will show up for that. Mm-hmm. And I was not an unknown person in the community. Coming back, I had had a television show there, and I had, you know, like, right. so there was some awareness. You had of been me. a feared theater critic, and when one local actress found out you were going to be reviewing theater, she said, Well, that's it, I quit. <laughs> And she didn't. That's a true story, by the way, that I she know did say from being that, your best friend. But she did not right? actually quit. So, And I ended up casting her in something and directing Well, that's great. But, so the, but the thing that I was going to – the place I was going to go, but it sounds like you didn't end up there, is that their attitudes towards sexuality can change when the person – the gay person is viewed as being financially successful or successful in another area. Like it is easier for people to accept Ellen than it is for them to accept their local grocer might be a lesbian. I, I, I'm not – it's a cynical point that I'm making, but I, I had a moment with a friend of mine from high school. I had a challenging experience in high school because I felt that I didn't fit in, and a lot of that was more my attitude about myself than it was about anything that specifically happened to me. There were nasty things said about me because I was into theater and I didn't play any sports and I was very sensitive and all those sorts of things. But I wasn't really aggressively bullied to the extent that a lot of my gay friends were. I was never beat up. I was never shoved into a locker. And probably because they were afraid my mother would have killed them. I was. Yeah, exactly. And I hear those stories more and more, which have given me perspective. But, you know, like I was the I was the theater gay, you know. And I, I published a book called A Density of Souls about my high school experience, which – and it was not – I don't even want to – I say that reflexively because so many other people said it. It was a thriller that was very loosely inspired by things I felt in high school. I'm writing a book about all all of you. you. It was a play too. I'm writing a play about all of you. It was a revenge piece, right? If you're a gay writer from the South, you may write a revenge piece. You didn't. You wrote actually a very laudatory point of view of of your hometown and say uncle, but for the most part, I thought – Anyway, mine was a revenge piece, and so I was saying to my friend, this is a long walk to the punchline of this story, so many people from high school reach out to me now on social media, which is sort of a common thing, but like they don't seem to have any qualms about the fact that I was the theater gay then and that I wrote this book that sort of was perceived as casting our high school in a negative light, and she said the book was a success. She was like, that's why they're reaching out to you. They want to be affiliated with something that was a success. And I was like, oh, God, okay. You know, like, I, 
again, not the most spiritually uplifting point that I'm making and here. I but... don't know. Like, I, I think that's really hard to say. Like, I heard you when you said that to me, and, you know, I don't really know that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why people were there to support me. Maybe they were just there to support me. I, you know, I went to my high school, I went to my first, the 10-year reunion of my high school, and that's never happening again. No. It was like, oh, oh there's a God. reason I haven't seen these people for 10 years. Were there, but was there anti-gay sentiment? Oh, yeah. oh. And I really thought, you know, surely after 10 years, we will have moved past this. And they no, hadn't. there were, you know, ugly remarks and stuff. And I was like, really? Mm, that's you know, terrible. It was weird. It was a very weird setting. They, they chose music that hadn't been... Music that was even popular when we were in school. There was <laughs> what was it? What was it like from the fifties? They chose like fifties beach music, what? and I was like, like that's "We're not... from the seventies. We yeah. graduated in the seventies. Where is you know the Eagles? Right. Where are the where's John Denver? Where's the stuff that we were dancing to? You know, where's um, Andrea True Connection? Where's Casey Wait, and the me, Sunshine Let me, let me band? stop you for a minute. You were dancing to John Denver. Was it no, more sort of? But a we were dancing movie? to the Andrea yeah. True Connection and Casey sure. and the Sunshine course, Band, absolutely. which I also just said. But totally. you know, like, where's the music we were listening no. to? That I, I just thought it was weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Somebody yelled at me about some woman yelled at me about the clothes that I wore. I mean, we were hippies when mm-hmm. we were in high school. Um, so I. I, it was really bizarre, and I never went back. I it was like, no. yep, yeah, all through with you. Good I luck. haven't been to Good any luck. of them. So you know, like, and I guess some of those people were at the signing, and maybe some of them have been have been. And Facebook I, let me stop you because I don't mean to say for a minute that the people who showed up to your signing to support you were only there because they viewed you as a success. I'm just curious if it's a bigot switch, right? That if it once you are perceived as being successful, it can turn off like 30 to 40 percent of the people who might have been ugly to you. Otherwise, I'm curious if it has that effect. I think it's more like the Prop 8 effect. Mm. Like Prop 8 passed in California, and it really hurt. Yes. Like I, I had a really hard time. President Obama got elected in the same election, and everybody was really excited and I was really happy about that. Right. But we were also dealing with our neighbors voted to take away some of our rights. A lot of our neighbors. It was really the, the color-coded map was terrifying. It hurt. It really hurt. I would go to the grocery store and think, who here hates me? Mm-hmm. And what happened was we went out and said, wow, you guys really hate us. There were marches and rallies and mm-hmm. whatever, and people called out the jerks at the Mormon church and the mm-hmm. that Dodson crowd. The, yeah. You know, people got called out for their bad behavior, and people saw who we were. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you'd stand a chance of passing that same legislation. And I think that may be the difference more than the success. Yeah. Visibility. It's visibility. Visibility. Yeah. I'm always used to say, and maybe it's still true, but it certainly was back in the olden times, back in the dark ages of being gay, that the greatest act of homophobia every day was perpetrated by gay people when mm-hmm. we said who we are should be hidden. Right. You know, our decision to stay hidden, to stay in the closet, was the most homophobic thing that happened. And it denied other people the ability to know us and, as I said earlier, to support us. Right. And I think that, you know, oh, well, this is the guy that I knew from high school. This is the guy from that TV show who I thought was so funny. This is the guy, you know right. what I mean? I think people saw that and went, 
well, I can support him. Yes, absolutely. You know it's what I mean? the and, Torch I, Song trilogy moment where she says, the mother says to Harvey Firestein, you cut me out of your life and then blame me for not being there. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't yeah. be yourself with me. And then it was, I was supposedly this bigot. And it, you know? right. And so I think it works two ways. I mean, I, there's certainly plenty of bigotry out there. And oh, I've yeah. certainly oh, been yeah. subjected to it. Oh, but, yeah. but, but I think that it does more to move the needle forward for people. I, I just think that my, all... Well, maybe not all, but most bigotry is about ignorance. Mm -hmm. If you don't know who it is you hate, well, then how do you know you really hate them? I've never understood bigotry for that reason. There are plenty of people that I hate, Mm -hmm. but it's on an individual basis and for their own special (laughs) hatefulness. It's not because I don't know what shape their liver is or, you know, what. Their earlobes, or I just There's I can't imagine something... hating a whole group of people because of where they go to church, or what they believe, or what color their skin is, or any of those things. I just it has to be, I don't know, it has to be something that you've learned to do. I am fascinated by the nature versus nurture question as we were talking about earlier. And we were talking about things that that we have learned to do, Uh, you know, because I I think that hate is taught. It has to be taught, you know, and I think hate is fear. Do you think that's too glib? No, I think it I think that. Well, I think that kind of hate is fear. Like, yeah, the people that I hate in my life, it's because they, you know, did something shitty to me and were horrible or whatever, you know, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that's fear. That's circumstantial. Right. Yeah. Um, But I think if you are just saying I hate all of this particular religious group of people or all of this group of people because of who they love or all of this group of people because of what color their hair is. There's a decision that people make about other people's behavior when there is no tangible evidence that other people's behavior actually affects them, but yet they decide the behavior is somehow threatening that's Phobic. I mean, it is the definition. I I, want to tell an interesting story because, as you well know, I have a lot of phobias. You have a lot of phobias as well. I write books that are in part about scaring people. (laughs) I wrote a book once that scared you very badly. Great irony of your work is that, yeah, fearful person writes fearful stuff, and maybe that's why you do it. Maybe it's why I'm in control when I'm writing it. You know, it's mine to that I can take the the object of my fear. That snake. Wait, wait, the the heavens rise. The heavens rise. I've just. I was like, I know you, so I have to finish reading this book, and you put this snake scene in here, and you didn't tell me it was in here. I did. I maybe you did not I did, tell me. Okay, that. I didn't tell you about the snake scene. And I, I okay. I'll put it this way: if you haven't read the book, and I assume everybody has, there's true. a snake scene. There's a snake scene, but it's this evil guy puts a snake in the in the back seat of the cargo area of this family's SUV before they go on a road trip, and they leave on the road trip at the beginning of the book and you don't find out how the road trip turned out until the end of the book. So you have to wait the whole fucking book to find out. You know they went missing, and you're like, a snake can't make people go missing, but there was clearly involved in something, and something went terribly wrong in the car. So I put my best friend through that, and I put many readers through that, when I, in fact, have a terrible fear of snakes. But in investigating this, okay, in investigating— Investigating snakes? No, the topic of, let's call them semi—no, I'm going to call them irrational fears. Oh, yeah, they're totally irrational fears. So I read an article about a woman who was terrified of bears, okay? 
and she went on a camping trip that was conducted by mental health professionals, I believe, that was designed to rid people of their fear of bears. Oh. And they went close to where bears are in this national park or this, I don't know, wherever. Uh -huh. I assume it was a national park. And you were, you, you were, I'm not going. I don't this like Walmart. bears either. I think bears are cute on television. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was the local Walmart. They were camping in Echo Park. They were camping in Echo Park. Yes, the local Silver Lake bears. Different kind of bear. The kind that wears leather assless chaps. Um, no, they were in an actual wilderness area. Let's go with that. Okay. And they were um, brought where bears are doing bear things and <laughs> ignored them. Right, the bear. They walk from a safe distance. I don't know how they define that, or on a. I don't know what they fucking did, but they walk past the bears. The bears have no reaction to them, and then they camp, not too far away. And I guess they have like seminars about the bears, whatever. And the woman said, as she was lying in her tent that night, she said, "I realized that the source of my phobia required me to believe that those bears were going to stop whatever they were doing." And come for me specifically, which was completely oh, absurd. Oh, I was waiting for that part of the story. No, well, exactly. And she said she realized that belief is nonsense. It's like believing the plane is cra going to crash solely because you were on it. Like, statistically, you know, plane crashes are very remote. They're terrible when they happen, which is why we have an outsized reaction to them, and we should work to prevent them. And what's going on with the 737 MAX is very complicated, and we're not getting into it on this podcast, but... You know, the fact is, is they're very, if you believe that a plane is going to crash, as I often do, because I got on the plane, that is actually a form of narcissism and self-obsession. I, those are some harsh words, I know, but that was the woman's experience. She was saying, I had to believe that those bears that had their own lives, their own uh, relationship to these woods, things they needed to do, cubs they needed to protect, were going to just drop everything they were doing and come for my tent. You know, as the shark does completely irrationally right. in Jaws. You know, but he's going to travel from Massachusetts right. to the Caribbean. Exactly. Now, let's not get too. We're going to do a whole episode about Jaws the Revenge because okay, it's one of the great unsung classics of the Hollywood stick canon. Stick around for that. And Christopher has a great presentation, but not. We'll save that for Absolutely. another day. I did it at your house once for your holiday-themed movie night because, FYI, Jaws the Revenge is actually a Christmas movie. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make yes. is, uh, you know, just this morning, I was on social media, as I often am. You? Social media? I know. Imagine. I was on Twitter at Chris Rice Writer, by the way. Um, there's a video of a diver reaching out and touching the fin of a great white shark as it swims past it. And the shark is like, yeah, whatever. The shark has shark things to do. You know, like, I'm not saying go out and throw your kids in front of a great white shark. I think a healthy respect for nature. But it is because like. Because liability. I, the healthy respect for <laughs> financial liability. Yeah, don't ever say that. Uh, right? I mean, like. Take good care of your children. Absolutely. Keep them away from the sharks. Do That's not our official put policy. Put your children Say, in front as of they sharks. always say on any of those things, safety is the number one priority here at Christopher and Eric. TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. We need a sign on the wall that says, it has been this number of days since Eric threw a child at a shark. <laughs> 
There are no sharks here at TDPS Presents. And we do not advocate throwing children to sharks. Anyway, I think you kind of get the point of what I'm saying. Like, my fear of snakes believe is based on the belief that a snake is going to come for me. When snakes want to eat rodents and they want to hide where it's warm or cool, I, I don't that know. That isn't my... I'm terrified of snakes and I can't say... I don't have the same fear of snakes that you do. Like... I don't think that How there's. Is it different? I don't think that there's a snake under the bed. I don't think that there's going to be a snake in the apartment. I don't think that. That doesn't like it is for me. It is seeing a snake. It's a that visual just response. Scares. It's like it's like an electrical charge goes through me. Like, and it doesn't have to be, you know, in any way trying to threaten me or menacing me. Like. For me, the woman's experience of walking past that group of bears, if I walked past a group of snakes, Mm -hmm. I would be, I might faint. Even if they were barbecuing? If the snakes were barbecuing? (laughs) Yes, absolutely, and like listening to music. I would be so fucking freaked out by that that I don't know how I would possibly. I might never recover. They're from not barbecuing that. people. They're just having a snake barbecue, like what hanging would, out what doing would they snake barbecue. Well, I saw a beautiful picture online. Rats. It's what they call a meme. I think it's what the kids these days call a meme. It's not gifts move. Memes are, I think, stationary. And it was a guy, clearly a snake charmer, uh, holding up a stick and the two cobras in front of him. And they were in a classroom environment, and the two cobras were responding to the snake, the snake, excuse me, the stick, as they had been trained to do. And the caption someone wrote underneath it was, I was so moved by the story of these two cobras going back to school to finish their education. <laughs> I'm sorry. So like that, if it was like cobras doing fun things, would you still it would pass still out? would still freak yeah. me out. Like yeah, if fuck cobras, man. Seeing I don't a, do cobras. Seeing a snake yeah. at all, it doesn't make any difference. It is just an irrational response to seeing a snake. I think I passed, I think it was in third grade, they brought in a snake in a jar. So mm. it's dead. A dead snake. A dead snake in a jar of formaldehyde. And I think I either had to leave the room or passed out. I can't remember exactly. It was an extreme response. So that's, it is a different, you're right. You experienced this as a different but fear. I, but I wouldn't have sat in the classroom thinking that the snake was going to come there and get me. Yeah, because you have a member of your family who shall remain nameless who would occasionally have my version of it would decide that the snake, there was a snake in the movie theater. Mom. Mom yeah. has Okay, your, I was going to let, it's mom your mom. Mom has your same kind of fear. Yeah. She talked about that. She would become, she couldn't be sure that there wasn't a snake in the movie theater and she would have to leave the movie theater. There, it is a it fear to me. of the unseen, right? It is, we, we talk about this a lot as artists, as creative people, that the thing that made Jaws such a successful movie is the shark didn't work. And that is what Christopher does in the scene in that <laughs> Just so you know, it's an unseen snake. It's an unseen snake. And in an environment where they can't see where absolutely. the snake would be. And that's all I'm going to say because it's still a good book and you should absolutely you read should The read Heavens it, Rise. Yeah. I have another book but, that I just came out with that is snake. Well, wait, wait, hold on. Is that true? Is it really a snake-free novel? Yes. Yes, it is. Blood Echo is a snake-free novel. It is the second Burning Girl thriller. It's available on Amazon. And it is snake free if you if you were if you have a problem with that. But it also has scary things in it. And I and it's a fascinating yes. conversation to me because it's like sexual kinks. They are all specific to the person. But I want to know where they come from. So the, the the reason this topic came into my head, we are both fans of a show on ABC called The Kids Are Alright. Oh my it's god. It's so I love funny. That show it is so, so much. fucking funny. Just genius. Just one of the most brilliant shows. God, that's a brilliant. It's like it's written like a Rosalind Russell 
40s comedy. It's it's like they've got an hour's worth of script into 22 minutes. Yeah. They go 100 miles. Mary McCormick is a genius. What's the guy, the father that Oh, Michael Kudlitz, who's so freaking hot. Beautiful man. Yeah, really. And then these amazing collection of really talented children. And it's just one of the funniest and all of them are very talented there is not a weak actor link in the bunch it's so 100 miles an hour and they're each their own unique kind of kid anyway that's the setup so ABC and Hulu Yes, they're on Hulu. All the episodes are on Hulu. We love Hulu. Mm, loving Hulu. Are developing the Vampire Chronicles TV series currently. Hulu mm. is. I always need to say that in Yoda speak. I don't know why. Love Hulu. Yes. So they did an episode that involved roaches. They did. The kid found, one of the kids found a cockroach, I believe, in the garage. And discovered that you could make money racing them. And I was having a hard time with it. And I was sitting there thinking... So when I was 10 years old, we moved to New Orleans where the roaches are the size of cars. Okay, so Anne, you really don't want to listen to this Yeah, episode. if my mother is listening to this episode- We're going to talk off. about roaches. Because my mother is so phobic of these things, she makes us call, the, or she used to make us call them ours. We couldn't say the word. Yeah. Like, she and, got up and left Wally in the first- Because of the little scene, roach. The, and it's gone after that, and really uh-huh. it's not- But she didn't see that wonderful movie because it had- Because it's, you know, and I don't blame her. I get it. You, you, when you're afraid of stuff, you're afraid of stuff. So, I'm sitting there thinking, why am I afraid of this? Why am I having this reaction to this roach? Is it because I grew up, and I'm not blaming my mother, but is is it because I grew up seeing my mother be afraid of them? You know, because she was, like, we had some gnarly experiences when we moved back to New Orleans. Like, New Orleans go is into. really like the land of the roach. It's like, the it should land really the be the, on the state flag. <laughs> and they're called, technically they're called palmetto bugs. They're gigantic, They're and they will fly fucking at huge. you. You they turn would, on the lights, and they will fly at you. They and have this. carried off children, just small children. They're enormous. Yeah, they're enormous. But like, so like, they have not. They can't off any small do children. anything to but you they're really though. Big. They're just gross. So it's yeah, like, they're just like disgusting. the snakes. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of venomous snakes and huge constrictors. And that's almost none like of the I snakes. can hold a king snake. I've held king snakes. <gasps> you can see. That's where we're different. I could not hold a king snake. Yeah, like, I couldn't I touch a snake. I'm not so. But, like, where did this come from? And, like, so I always assume this is such the, like, Hollywood screenplay version. That well, like, my mother hates snakes. Maybe but, it's genetic. Well, but you have a different version of it. That's the thing. You don't have the same fear as your I mother. Don't. Your mother hates the unseen. Your mother hates what you can't see. Which is, why, which is why she goes through your coat pockets whenever you visit her. God knows. <laughs> we always used to say that she should have been in the CIA. She missed her colleague. She was unbelievable. She once did this thing where um, she couldn't decide. My sister's boyfriend was from Massachusetts, and he went home. He was in college in the city where we lived, and he went home to Massachusetts for the Christmas holidays. And Mom wanted to be sure that he wasn't seeing his ex-girlfriend while he was back in Massachusetts. Ooh-wee. So she called the ex-girlfriend. How she knew the number, I don't know, but we're talking about CIA genie. Mm-hmm. And, um, CIA and, genie. And said that he had won a, comp- uh, a, a raffle or a competition of some kind oh my and given God. this is the number and did they, you know, could she get in touch with him that way? And I was like, mother, you are the devil. Oh my God. Apparently she confirmed her suspicion. The girl hadn't seen him in ages and did not mm. have any idea where he was. And I have no so she idea. was, yeah. Yeah, she that is, is really just terrible. She's really it's why I don't ever I've never lied to my mother. There's no point in it because she just 
She knows everything. She is, and she's on it. She is, I hate moms like that. She's a sleuth. My mom is not like that. My mom. My mom knows a lot. She's a very talented genius, and 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 I absolutely adore her. But she never knows what my secret is. Like she always would guess the wrong thing. She would, like in high school. She'd be like, "Christopher, are you doing heroin?" And I'd be like, "No, but I am sucking that guy's dick." You know, like it's like she always was off. Like. You yeah, know, that's a big miss. It's a big miss because like those two things are not equivalent. They're not the same thing. Um, so our podcast is going to be flagged as explicit if you if you just found that out in front of your kids in the car. Um, I told you what my surprise. Co- what my cousin told me about the dinner party show. No. My cousin in Dallas. Yeah, Kim. She's. I said, have you listened to? My show, our our show. I was very clear with her that it was a show I share with Eric Sharquin. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she said, Christopher, I have children. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. I guess you can't play it during carpool yeah. when we're talking about, yeah, what's your know. favorite gay porn film tonight on the dinner party show with I Christopher don't know and Eric? That, yeah, I don't know that we're necessarily, you necessarily want us around. Because I, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't shelter kids from that stuff because they're going to be exposed to it anyway. But, like, that's somebody else's call. They're not my kids. So. Yeah. No, and I wasn't sheltered that way. I could go see R-rated mo- I remember when I was a child, I got to see Flashdance in the movie theater. It was my first R-rated movie, and I thought I was something. And you Flash know what? Flashdance is an R-rated it movie? It was R-rated. And we went, I think we saw it at the York Theater in San Francisco, I California. I those things. And I Flashdanced. You know, I cannot... I don't remember a frame of Flash Dance today, but I remember the event of going to see it in the theater. Well, I'll tell you, all you have to do is turn on your television anymore. I, I don't think there are any rules about what you can say on TV anymore. I hear people say pretty much everything yeah, now. Yeah, they do. I, we, we, you were remarking about cable. the other two, which is a Comedy Central show, which I'm a big fan of. And yeah. It is um, super, super gay. Is super explicit and, you know, comes on, I guess, right before The Daily Show because I don't watch The Daily yeah, Show the anymore. Yeah, sister but... saying she was going to 50 dicks in 50 days or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was like they're very, yeah, like yeah. I'm not offended by it, but it's like, oh, okay, because for a long time there were the seven deadly words you can't say on television or whatever that right. old George Carlin routine was. Mm-hmm. Which they repeated in the Howard Stern movie Private Parts. That was the first time I heard it. They had a standards and practices guy in a suit say them all really quickly back to back. I don't remember all of them. These are the words. But now, yeah, I think so. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we're explicit, maybe we're not. But we're definitely not going to be censoring ourselves. Anyway, yeah, so anyway, but, like, so, but back did to you come, qu- what Did you come to the conclusion that it was nurture or Well, nature, the Hollywood you- screenplay version, I don't know if I said this or not, is uh, like you were in the crib and whatever it was got in the crib with you. I think there was a novelization of the film Arachnophobia, which I read as a young man. And that was, I think, built into the story. I don't think that was actually in the what? Movie. The spider got in his crib when he oh, was a kid. And, I see. That's why he was afraid yeah. of it. But I think here's what it yeah, is with me about. I'm not afraid of spiders. I think there is a. I don't know what the right term is for it. There is, I don't want to get too Freudian with all of it. There is an undercurrent to whatever the phobia is, right? Like most fears are about powerlessness. I'm going to. A loss of control. Yeah. You know? And I, for me, the snake thing is about the unseen, but it is also about something that moves on a plane of motion that is not mine, that is not my plane of motion. Snakes can do things that I can't. They can disappear into cracks that I can't see into. They can also come at me from angles that humans can't come at, from rafters, things like that. It's that sense of being surrounded and unable to defend myself. But also the sense of 
they're they're focused on you. Right. Absolutely. And well, and that's the the highly illogical part of it that they were they're not heat seeking missiles seeking out human no, beings. No, in fact, they're the they are actually heat seeking. Like the, yeah, most of the times that we've talked about snakes, I've been like, is the air conditioner on? Well, then the snake isn't going to want to be there. But you know, I write the story the way I wrote it in my book. A nemesis of mine is put the snake in my apartment, and it's like the and it's going to be sitting under. You know, it's just crazy. It, it's like the scene from Doctor Who where they put the spider in. Doctor No. Doctor No. Doctor No. Doctor, You're so not British. Doctor Who. That's but so they're both funny. British, so that but joke the, made no they're sense. They're both British, but yeah. yeah, they put the spider in um, James right. Bond's hotel and room. Very slowly crawls up his chest and he knocks it off, and it's like, <laughs> okay, well that was terrifying. Yeah, but you know we talk about this a lot, and God knows if anybody reads anything about me on the internet, they have they forgive me. I'm going to tell the story again, but. The Burning Girl series was born out of someone repeating to me a scene from the first Saw film, which I never saw and never will see, about a woman who is trapped in a device, and unless she grievously injures somebody else, she she won't be able to get out of the device. And, I mean, the scene just fucking flipped me out. Just the telling of it. I I, I was obsessed, you know, but I have a very... Obsessive mind. Oh yeah, yeah. As do you, Miss Superior. You're very obsessive. Uh, Christmas Village. Those are the two words I have to say to you. <laughs> well, no, that's just focused. <laughs> yeah, focused. A focused <laughs> obsession is what it's called. Anyway, the um uh the scene was so disturbing to me. I realized the only way I was going to be able to get it out of my head. I remembered something that my aunt Karen had said to me about watching something disturbing. Uh, it was a TV movie version of the Thomas Tryon novel, The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. And she, the ending was so upsetting to her, and one character was so wronged that she would lie in bed at night and she would imagine that character coming back and getting revenge against everybody. Uh-huh. And so as I was driving to Palm Springs for a book event with this scene from Saw that I had never seen, my own version of it circling in my head, I realized I needed to write a story about a woman, a female victim, who was strong enough for some reason that at the very moment some sadistic serial killer thought he was going to get her, she was able to pop out of her fucking restraints and just hammer the fucking shit out of him. Just beat him to a pulp. Or kill him to get free. Whatever she needed to do to get out of that situation. So it was a saw scene. It was a saw scene. Because I have an obsessive mind, and because you do too, even if you're not admitting it for the purposes of this podcast Well, I don't have today. the same kind of obsessive mind. You know, Eric, I don't... I, uh, we'll My talk. mind is special. You're my, I'm special. I'm Eric Special <laughs> Quinn. Uh, but I want to hear from our party people. That's what we call the people who support TDPS, who supported the Dinner Party Show, and are now presumably supporting this podcast, and I'm sure we got some, some new listeners out there. I want to hear from you on our Facebook page which is the Facebook page for The Dinner Party Show, what scares you and why do you think it scares you? Because I am, I not only is this my business, but I am fascinated. I don't write bright, cheerful Scary things like you. business. But even I write murder mysteries. Yeah. And so, like, Patricia um, Cornwall came in and she was talking about the... Um, about that you, you should write about the things that scare you the most because mm-hmm. those will get... The most fidelity. When I was first writing Right Murder, she came and she was so generous. She really was. She was great. 
She was really uh, in that episode. You can download her stream from thedinnerpartyshow.com. I, she came a couple times. I yeah. think we had her on twice. And yeah. she was. And afterwards, she had to wait for her ride. And we sat in the lobby and talked about process. It was really, yeah. it was really lovely. But yeah, one of the things that she said was, "You should write about the things that scare you." The thing that scares me the most is being in the house with somebody that you don't know that's there. You don't, oh, and you don't know that they're there. That is terrifying. That and is I terrifying. realized when. She told me that, that it was already in the book. I had mm-hmm. already put it in there. It's like, wow, well, that was any very insightful. So yeah. the new book, Blood Echo, is yes, out. Yes, it is out. And uh, so no spoilers because I'm really glad you brought up the whole Burning Girl thing because I haven't finished reading it. <gasps> I forgot that I we got I started reading it because we were going to do the signing and the book came out and it was whatever. Right. Very unusually. Usually I've read them before they're ever published. You and your mom will often ask me to read um, before, which i very honored and it wasn't a big deal, but it just didn't happen with this one. And so I started reading it so that we would do the signing and then – well, I don't know that all hell broke loose well, at work, but we had a lot of a reading lot, to do at work. A lot of reading happened, and we all got sick. We we said on the last episode that we we can tell you we can't tell you much about the Vampire Chronicles right now. We did tell everybody that we have a wonderful showrunner right. in D Johnson, and that all our upda- updates are going to be on the Vampire Chronicles Facebook page, which is verified right. blue check mark on Facebook. Um, but in our work environment, we all got the same cold. <laughs> and so it, I, and then we had all had birthdays. So it was like yeah. this enormous distraction period. And it's just dawning on me. Oh my goodness. I get to go home tonight and finish reading my friend's book. Cause it's really good. That's after we go to the ripped bodice and sign some internet orders that are long overdue. For the same book. And yeah. if you want, if you want signed copies of our books, you can get them from the, um, yeah. from the ripped bodice. We can even do personalized, which is, I guess Absolutely. what we're doing today. I don't know, but we're going over there and they will ship them directly to you wherever you are. Their website is theripbodice.com. I, I think. think it's the ripped bodice, LA.com. Yes. I always forget about the LA. Um, I was going to say, (laughs) I was going to say, well, and I've forgotten enough times now that I've learned in enough social media posts where no link shows up. And B and Leah called you at the house and said, stop Uh, leaving off the L.A. They're so sweet. They would never They would never do that. Also, they're becoming kind of celebrities. Like, they're really, like, They're going to be too famous for us. They're going to shoot past us. We're going to be like, we knew them when. Because it's all a competition. It is. Life is an endless competition with snakes. Okay. So I want you to tell us I, I, no more snakes. We're not talking about snakes, but we are talking about crime. We're going to introduce something in our next episode. Oh my God! Well, it's the perfect marriage of crime us. and our personal obsessions. <laughs> yes, yes. Talk, and talking us. and crime, right? Yes. Which is very popular right now, podcast wide, by the way. So, uh, but 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 it, we have a special kink. Mm-hmm. Like Christopher actually keeps a spreadsheet. His kink is so special. <laughs> Wait, can we can we do, can we talk about my spreadsheet? <laughs> you came up with this idea, and I made a spreadsheet for the idea, which I won't explain in detail. And I presented it to you, and the response you were supposed to have was, "Oh my, Christopher, what an what an amazing color coded spreadsheet!" Instead, you had thoughts about how the spreadsheet could be improved and what columns and rows could be. And I was like, "I didn't clearly didn't." brief you enough for this conversation. You were just supposed to think this was a great spreadsheet. <laughs> was I was I right? You were right, I think. I think we had. I can't I can't remember. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is we love um watching 
true crime television shows. Yeah, the trashier kind of the better, but yes. sometimes they're higher tone too. But 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 we love good old Dateline and Twenty Twenty, mm, Forty Eight Hours, all those ID investigations, Wives with Knives. Mm-hmm. And, Evil right. Lives Here is a new one I just added to my list. Yeah. yeah. I, those, we love those. And so we thought, how fun would it be to do like a book club except with true crime TV? Absolutely. So we're going to do Christopher and Eric's, because he always gets top billing for some reason. My name um, is longer. It has to go first. It has more letters. And yours fits snugly at the end. That's why... There we are. Uh, Christopher and Eric's True Crime Book Club. True Crime TV Club. TV. It's your idea, Eric Jarquin. And along those lines. I was was home one night and watching trashy true crime TV. And I I realized that I can't, like, if I turn on the television and Dateline is already on, I can't change the channel or stop watching. I have to know how it comes out. No matter where in the show, I can be five minutes from the end or 45 minutes from the end, I'm stuck. So I have to be very careful about what channel the TV's on. At any given moment, I've got about 30 episodes recorded on my DVR. And if I start to watch it and realize that I have seen this episode before, I have to fast forward to the final act break. That's that's a commercial for those of you who aren't in entertainment. They're called act breaks here in the business. Um, I fast forward and watch Hmm. the last... I think five to ten minutes. I can't remember how much the last act of the show is. Because I, even if I've seen it before, I have to remind myself of how it turned out. Yeah. Listen, I think Dateline, and to some extent 48 Hours, but really Dateline is the reigning king, queen, or whatever. Um, they are masters at, particularly if you're watching something where you know what the outcome is and you see how they're hiding the ball and how they're building suspense. It's really, it, it can be an education for, for, for a crime novelist or a thriller writer or whatever to see, no, you drop this little hint here and then you don't, no, you don't show her until this moment and because that'll blow the surprise. It, not incidentally, you write crime novels and I write murder mysteries. So, you Absolutely. know, it kind of all fits, it's all sort of this beautiful marriage and package together. So we'll see how it goes, but you have to play along too. Yes. Like, it will be all spoilers, so if you don't watch, you know, be prepared to hear the ending, but but just like you would if it was a book club. Well, well right, and I mean, I think... We're... Everybody looks at the same episode, and everybody... And then we talk about it. Exactly, we and talk about it. And you can text us questions yeah. or comments or whatever. Or... On the Facebook page, On... the Dinner Party Show Facebook page right. is where we'll be talking about this stuff. If we get anything wrong, please weigh in as well. If we get the facts wrong and the details wrong, leave a comment. We'll also post, you know, like, you know, some supplemental materials if we can find them. But mostly we want it to be about having a conversation. And I think, I believe the thing that you said, which is really on point is that we're going to try to talk about each documentary where you can enjoy the conversation if you did see it, but you will know exactly what we're talking about if you didn't see it. We're going to try to take you through it. So you can watch if you want, but you don't have to, I think, to, to enjoy yeah, it won't, what we're going to have to we, say about it. It won't be like, what are they talking about? We won't be so esoteric yeah. that it wouldn't be. I don't think it's really possible with most of these no. to be esoteric at all. And kind of if you've seen one, you have a pretty general idea. But yeah. Yeah, so the spreadsheet, now that we've said what the idea is, the spreadsheet was I went online and I looked at every um, true crime documentary that I could find. 
for the time being, we left out Dateline in 48 hours, and we may get to those soon because there can be some. We want to we want to pick stuff that's reasonably available for all of you. So I was going through, and all the color coding was about like if it was only on Hulu, it had green color coding. If it was only on Netflix, it had red color coding because Netflix's logo is red. If you're one of the five people who doesn't have Netflix, so that was fun. But what we picked for next week is a documentary called Southwest of Salem. The Story of the San Antonio Four, and it is available on, uh, I know it's available on Hulu, which requires a subscription, but it is also available either for rent or for sale on Prime. On Prime. Yeah. And so it is out there, and I think what you can also do, and we'll post the name of the documentary on Facebook as well, if you just Google the name of the documentary, it will inevitably show you all of the options um, for purchase or for rent. And typically, if something is available on Amazon Prime, it's also available on um, iTunes, which I think is no longer going to be iTunes. I don't know. I think the movies and TV are being moved. Don't whatever. ask me to explain Apple. those people. It's available on Apple. So that we're not going to pick <clears throat> stuff. We're going to try to stay away from picking stuff that you have to pay, I don't know, $60 to, to watch and and all that sort of stuff. Right, we're going to try to avoid firewalls as much as yeah. possible so that we're picking stuff that's universally available so that you don't have to get a subscription or something. But, but you know, to the best that we can. But there's a certain amount of that that's just... Yeah, and he, speaking with such authority, he reaches over to check his phone and make sure that he got the name of the documentary right. South of Salem or Southwest, Southwest. of Salem? Yeah, that's right, Southwest of Salem, the San Antonio Four. So... With that in mind, I was out of town this week, and I saw something that I thought would not only be a fun gift for Eric Shaw Quinn, but the perfect gift to give in this moment, given what we're talking about. So I'm going to present it to him on the air. Oh, my God, the expression you are giving me right now. Well, I'm just thinking, like, I'm trying to think what would be... It's a subpoena to appear in a court trial against an accused murderer you it's didn't re- even know you knew. It's a remake of Dennis the Menace. <laughs> <laughs> That's wrapping paper, folks. The Donner Dinner Party. Absolutely. A it's rowdy a- game of frontier cannibalism. There is somebody with a full mouth on the cover uh, and look at the expressions of her fellow party members because she's eating a person because that's what the Donner Party did. I know. That's really terrifying. Right? <laughs> Who can you trust when everyone tastes the same? <laughs> I was <laughs> waiting for you to read that, waiting for you to read that out loud uh, into a microphone. That's really sort of terrifying. Isn't it horrible? I thought of you immediately. Ages 12 and up. I'm not sure if I'm doing this for, to 12-year-olds. Like, I, I think mean- maybe you want to hold off on the Donner Party cannibalism for a couple of years. Fifteen. I don't know. Fifteen. Maybe I'm least. underestimating twelve year olds. No, I don't know. I that would freak me out when I was twelve, but a lot freaked me oh, out when I was twelve. Everything everything out. still freaks me I'm out. I'm not sure. I don't remember actually having being a child specifically. It wasn't very clearly delineated with me. You never really were never a child. really. It no. was a, officially, you know, temporally I was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, there was not really there was not really a time when I was yeah. a child. Well, and your innocence will be completely <clears throat> destroyed, given what we're about to do on the dinner party. It's not the dinner. Well, My innocence. Your innocence. Whatever's left of your innocence is going to be <laughs> obliterated by well, the. I think what we're saying was that there never really was any. There was no, never there really that period of discovery. So I don't really know if there was a time when I was shocked about anything or not. Yes, absolutely. Well, 
We will see um, whether this documentary shocks us or not. Southwest of Salem, the story of the San Antonio Four. We're going to be watching and it you for see. next week's you, episode. You, yeah. you see if it shocks you, and then you know, text us your questions or your thoughts about it. Or text, I keep saying that. <laughs> Message us questions about it on the Eric's Facebook phone page. number is 976-WITT for WIT. Remember 976 numbers? Where have they gone? I think that was an 80s We 90s should try thing. calling some of them just to see <laughs> 976 hot butt. You know what I did once? What? There was I was spending the summer in Dallas with my my like grandparents or that we had family in Dallas. It's where my parents were from, where my dad was from. And there was I was into soap operas in case anyone was wondering if I was a huge homosexual yet. And there was a a 900 number or a 976 number. No, was wondering. Um you could call and get the rundown of whatever happened on General Hospital that week, and they would read it to you. It was just a synopsis. Well, if you called that same number in San Francisco, where we lived, it was a story about two men checking into a hotel room together on a business trip, and it went to a very, a very different place than General, General Hospital could go in that era. Different kind of stuff. It was around. like, holy moly. Speaking of shattering the innocence of... Uh, I think I was actually probably seven or eight years old when that happened. Yeah. yeah. So many disturbing influences. So many, so many. Well, we're going to disturb you again in our next episode. Um, Southwest of Salem. I keep saying the name right. to make sure I didn't With, get it wrong. Um, True Crime TV Club. Er, Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, debuting on the third episode of Christopher and Eric, our all-new podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to subscribe on... Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, because we are trying to make this podcast available everywhere. And as always, it is available to download and stream from thedinnerpartyshow.com. What did I miss? Am I leaving anything out? Probably. Probably. Well, we'll just add it on the next yeah. show. We'll do that. They'll figure it out, or they'll tell us that we forgot to say it. Absolutely. All right. That's it for us uh, for this episode. I'm Christopher. And I'm Eric. And you've been listening to Christopher. And Eric. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.